This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell from the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Jessie Burton, welcome to Better Reading. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah. So it's um, COVID circumstances yet again. and But one of the benefits of COVID is that I can talk to you because pre-COVID, <laughs> we didn't have this technology. So no, it's very true. So Jessie's in London, and as you all know, I'm in Sydney, and I'm in lockdown at the moment. But Jessie is an English author who studied at the University of Oxford and the Royal Central School of Speech and Drama. She has written three Sunday Times bestselling novels, The Miniaturist, The Muse, and The Confession. They have been published in 40 languages. The Miniaturist sold over 1 million copies and was adapted into a BBC television miniseries. She's here today to talk about Medusa, her second book for young readers. It's a feminist retelling of the classic Greek myth. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) And it's beautifully illustrated, can I say that as well? Talk to me about the book and how it is that you came to find your illustrator as well. Just give us an overview. So the book is, I think when I was writing it, I was thinking of maybe 13 to 15, 16-year-olds. But also whenever I write, I'm hoping that, you know, I don't, I don't over-specify my audience. It's just, you know, hoping somebody will enjoy it, um, whether they're 12 years old or 82 years old. My editor at Bloomsbury Children's, a wonderful woman called Ellen Holgate, contacted my agent and said, would Jessie ever be interested in writing for children? And I really, really was. I always have loved children's books both as a child myself and then as an adult particularly illustrated ones and it was just like this Christmas present come early this idea that I could write two books so the first was The Restless Girls which was for a slightly younger audience and then then Medusa and what Ellen wanted was a sort of yes a retelling or a behind the scenes or a different angle or just a different approach to a very well-known myth or story and when it came to Medusa I instinctively wanted to tell her story from a first person perspective because traditionally I felt all we knew really about her was this decapitated head with a terrifying um, mane of snakes and um, she was decapitated by Perseus but if any man looked at her he would turn to stone and I wanted to dig deeper as to what had happened to her to get to that point before she became essentially a cipher for Perseus's heroic journey. And when it came to looking for an illustrator, we wanted somebody who could really match the epic scale of such a story, a myth, you know, the extremes of drama and bloodthirstiness and passion and wildness, because it's a very wild story. It's set on a tropical, rocky island. In a way, you've got a responsibility to that genre, haven't you? 
Like it's a big it's subject. Big. It's big in on so many levels. And well, yeah, yeah, it is big. And I suppose it is extraordinary when you think how long they've survived thousands and thousands of years. But I think there's something to that. There's a robustness as a result that means they can be bent hither and thither and reinterpreted um, because they are flexible. And I think those sort of stories reflect the way they're told or the way they're interpreted reflect the society in which they're being reinterpreted at any given moment in time. And I wanted to keep that epic sweep, that sort of, and the the style of the prose is quite declamatory at times. It's quite poetic. I kind of imagined it being spoken aloud, but at the same time, I really wanted a conversational, intimate tone as well, so that readers could sort of feel like they knew who Medusa was. And finding Olivia, her name is Olivia Lominet Gill, the the painter, she's a fine artist, was um, a real coup because she had done the Harry Potter Fantastic Beasts books. So she, and she's just an extremely incredible artist. Like her paintings are breathtaking. And over here in the UK, we've got early readers looking at it now and they're just sort of, the minds are blown by how beautiful it is. And I can't, I haven't met her because of COVID. (laughs) And uh, I hope one day to be able to see her and to see the paintings in the flesh because I've only ever seen them on a computer screen. Mm-hmm. But I feel so lucky as somebody who loves visual art to have her words turned into paintings and then for those paintings to be in this amazing book. Mm. Extraordinary. So you wrote the book first. Tell me about that. I did. Yeah. Well, I wrote it actually four years ago, 2017. I wrote it before I wrote my novel, The Confession, because I knew I would have a, a horrible book hangover after The Confession and I wouldn't be able to write anything. I'd be drained. So... I wrote Medusa first and I wrote it in Argentina, actually. I was uh, living there. Yeah. Um, back in the I, day? <laughs> yeah, back in the day where you can get on a plane and, yeah, you know, live right. your life. Yeah, and I it came really easily, more easily than many of my other books. <laughs> and I think that might be because there was this blueprint, this idea of what Medusa was. And so I had something to work against rather than something to invent entirely from my own imagination. But at the same time, it was fun to kind of give her a family. She has these two sisters mm. who are actually in the original myth, but I made them, you know, more, uh, I suppose, tangible to a reader. And she has this lovely dog called Argentus and she loves fishing. And I kind of wanted not to humanise her, but to sort of make her feel like a relatable young woman. Mm, give her a and personality. Exactly. Yeah. And, um, yeah, I just wrote it and then wrote it again and then sent it to my editor and then wrote it again. And it was, it was funny because I suppose there are elements in the book that it's a book that does look into the issues of young women, particularly being objectified from a young age for their looks and having those catcalls or comments or judgments made upon them from a young age and then how that can be turned on them as well accusations of vanity or being too interested in their looks when society has told them to invest in their looks because I didn't realize Medusa was a very beautiful young woman before she was turned into a gorgon or in quotes a monster so I thought that was really interesting to look into ideas of what beauty is and what someone's supposed to do with their physical attributes and when that can override their internal journey Around the time that I finished the book, 
the Harvey Weinstein case broke. And it was just so interesting to me because I'd written this character of Poseidon, who was this huge, bulky, hulking individual who in the original myth assaults and, well, he rapes her Mm. and she gets punished for that. And it was just odd to me. I realised what I was writing was a tale as old as time, you know, that this young girl had had no choice in the matter and was having her life taken out of her hands rapidly by a set of adults and her journey to finding herself. And I know it's very, it can be quite a trite thing to say, you know, you find yourself because I think we're always looking for ourselves our whole lives. It's not just a, a, a terminal experience, but it was very interesting to me to finish that book and have that break and all these stories break open about women in their workplace, in their lives, you know, about their sense of not being able to own themselves and being blamed for that lack of ownership. So it was a an interesting reflection. It's been an interesting day for me because I've podcasted this morning and I was speaking to um, a commercial fiction writer of historical fiction and she's retelling a Chaucer tale. Oh, right. Uh, yes, and again, bringing out the female character. And I thought it is us. I think about this a lot. Is it, and, and you, you might be able to answer this and you would have come across it in your research. Are we, because I feel that women in history they were never the heroes, they were never spoken of, because history, particularly in the arts, particularly in literature, particularly in painting, has always been a male perspective. And the women were there, they were just never written about or their stories have never been told. Yeah. And yeah, that, and that's what you've done. I think it's just, I mean, the older I get, I, I just sort of feel that history is always written by the victorious party or the dominant yes. party. And there is, you know, you know, we have it particularly in the UK as well. Our colonial history is so uh, poorly documented. I mean, it's just not the, the points of view of people who were colonial subjects or who were enslaved or who, you know, were not considered their opinions or their education or their well-being was not considered as equal to those of white people or men. And I do think it's the same situation often with women in history they were not legal entities you know they became the possession of their husbands or their fathers and that has a very insidious effect in culture it's just a drip 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 effect through tens of hundreds of years and I I feel it like in my own education at school we read a lot more men than we did women and I learned how to ventriloquize the male experience, I suppose, into a female experience. I think women are very good at doing that. We've had to. We've had to sort of watch endless movies where it's like the protagonist is male. And, you know, you always see those things if they put Batman in the Catwoman costume and gave Batman Catwoman's lines mm. and movements. You just see how ridiculous he looks. Like, we just accept all of that as norm. And... It's tricky as well, because what I never wanted to do is just swap the gender, you know, like, oh, well, let's just make Medusa like a boy. Oh, God, no. Yes. Yeah. It's about her femininity being That's as right. valuable. And who but she also, is. Yeah. It's about her autonomy and her agency mm-hmm. outside all the factors of sort of societal labels. Because I say in the book, you know, she, she was herself you know, she was none of these things. She wasn't a Gorgon or a girl. She was Medusa. Mm. 
But also in the book, I wanted to look at Perseus's situation because I think that young men suffer as well in our culture of, of expectations of quite masculine, traditional masculine behaviours that don't, that don't help them at all in terms of reflection and being able to express their emotions and expectations of macho or manliness. And so Perseus is under duress coming to Medusa's island. He doesn't want to cut the head off the Medusa. He has to do it because his stepfather has sent him so that his, well, his stepfather wants to marry his mother. Sorry, he hasn't married her yet. But Perseus is, I've described him as a sort of young boy, like trying to drag his shield up the hill. It's all too big for him. It's all too much. And in the end, you know, I don't want to give spoilers, but Perseus kind of falls into old habits. But it's a terrible bind for both young women and men, I think. But traditionally, absolutely, women have not been afforded the same access to education or financial power, which is mm. huge. Also, too, what I want to say, I've, um, in lockdown, I've taken to you know, reading some old books that I haven't read for years, watching some old movies that I haven't watched. And, you know, they're not that old. Like, you know, I don't know what I was watching the other day. It was a movie, an old movie. And I couldn't tolerate it anymore because of the sexism. I just thought, mm. oh, are you joking? <laughs> and I had to turn it off. But I remember when I first saw it that I didn't notice any of that. Oh, I know. It's horrible, isn't it, when you... Yes. You go back and you think, I just watched this and accepted this and thought this yes. was normal. And you probably, I'm not, I don't know about you personally, but our yes. behaviours will have reflected back into our lives the way we will have conducted ourselves and expected what we expected for ourselves based on these stories that we were told. A hundred percent. Yeah. And when I look, touching on Harvey Weinstein and touching on that, and when I look at the outrageousness of that situation and, and how long it went on for and for how many years female actresses were enduring that. And then sometimes as a as a viewer, I think, was I participating by not questioning it, by accepting? Because if you go back just as early as 10 years ago, a lot of the female roles were always the romantic counterpart. Mm -hmm. They never really had a voice beyond that. And now I can't tolerate it. It drives me nuts. Mm -hmm. And it still happens now, though, because you see the casting of a male actor who's pushing 60 yes. and his female counterpart is 30. Mm. <laughs> You're like, that's gross. Mm. <laughs> but because it's the filmic universe, mm. we're like, eh, what are you going to do? You know, and it's very hard as a consumer, as an audience member to, what are you going to do? Just not, not go to the movies, not read books. It's very difficult. And I do think both things are changing and there are so many more books mm. and movies and films and makers of all those things. Particularly, I think, when you have female directors in charge, you can exactly. tell yeah. the movie is different. Yeah. And casting. And yeah, I'm saying there's so many movies I just won't watch yeah. now or new things as well. I'm just like, this is so lazy. It's so badly done. This is so old. Who made this? Why did they commission it? You know. Mm. Yeah, and I think I think it's the same with books as well. For a long time we were just reading the male perspective and you know, yeah. I tolerated it. I loved it for a long time. And now I'm like, no, nah, don't want it. Well, it's no, tricky, isn't it, if a writer is a talent? Because mm -hmm. some of these guys are bloody good at writing. So you well, can't, you know, that's And you know why? Because they were given the opportunity because, you know, <laughs> back in the home, 
we were no, doing I all know. the work. That's oh, I know, I know. It's, yeah. it's, but I'm just saying it's that's the problem. Like, yeah. not it, the root goes back deeper, doesn't it? If you're not allowed to even, it's where where we lay authority or where we think artistic authority or integrity or creativity has lain. And for so many years, it's been with the male voice. And within that male voice, I think they there is so so much multiplicity. Whereas the female voice has just been, oh, well, she's going to write about babies and houses and, Mm -hmm. you know. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Even recently, pre-COVID it was, maybe two or three years ago, but not that long ago, I was doing a talk at a Brisbane library and this guy, there weren't many men in the audience, but there were a couple with their partners and he said, I want to ask you a question. He said, you know, just about Australian women writers, how come when women write, they only write about kids and going to school? Going to school. <laughs> yeah. He was talking, I think, wow. about um, Moriarty, Leanne Moriarty. I mean, that's oh, right. just one author, you know. Yeah. And I said it to him, and there lies the problem because mm-hmm. either that's what you're reading or you're not reading enough to know better. Yeah. I was just so short with him. But Good. that's the perception, isn't it? <laughs> totally. Tell me. I want to know how you came to writing. Were you a crazy reader or yeah, I mean, I was. I'm an only child, and oh, um, wow. I did have friends. She said, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I did. Can I just tell you this? Sorry for interrupting. I've recorded hundreds of author podcasts over the last couple of years. I could probably have told you that you're an only child because <laughs> only because when people tell me their story of how they came to writing. It's usually because of something. It's not a sad story necessarily. It's like they were like an immigrant and they came here and they felt left out or they were right. they grew up on a remote property and it was a girl and she was only one of five, you know, the only girl in the family or something. There is always, a, I guess it's giving room for that person to be creative is how yeah. I see it. Does yeah. that make sense? Well, I, yeah, it does make sense. I suppose that, well, I mean, it's something I have thought about a lot, like where did it come from, this desire to make things up? But I suppose when you are an only child, there is a lot of space and time and peace and quiet, if you're lucky. You know, I had mm. two very loving parents who were quite peaceful people themselves. So, you know, we were always reading. And my two loves when I was growing up and still are really, well, three, reading, writing and acting. And my greatest dream was to be an actress. 
which was a dream that really continued until I was about 28. And I always felt that acting was more fun than writing. I knew that writing was perhaps more symbiotic with who I was, but I always found it much harder. Whereas acting was fun, communal, sociable, everyone clapped and laughed. Immediate <laughs> reaction. Yeah, exactly. Like when I write a book, I have no idea what I'm saying. Um, what it is. <laughs> exactly. It's, a, it's, it's funny because so many times in interviews, people have said to me, well, I suppose writing and acting are very similar. And I just think they could not be more different. You know, you, mm. you make your work as a writer alone for years with no colleagues or company. It's bloody awful. I don't know why anyone, you know, likes it. Mm. And Whereas was acting, I could be in a rehearsal room with people I loved and who made me laugh. And But unfortunately, I think the reality of the acting profession and, you know, I just, the writing was on the wall. The phone wasn't ringing and I was wasting 12 months of my life at a time waiting for somebody else to give me permission to start my life. Like it was just, I couldn't take it anymore. So oh, hard. so then you went to a career where <laughs> rejection again. <laughs> Well, I was well for what? It was practice, practicing. Yeah, exactly. Rejection. I was like rejection. I mean, I am a pro in rejection. I can do it. So, I can do it. Yeah, exactly that. It was so funny. I basically swapped one illusion for another, or delusion, if you if you wish. That was absolute textbook. Like. Yeah. Well, I I I can't make this work, but I I'll try and make this work instead. And I think it was partly. The difference, though, was that with writing, I could do it at home, like on my own. And I didn't have to wait for the phone to ring or go to an audition with 20 other women who looked exactly like me, um, you know, in an ageist, sexist business. And with writing, I'm I'm 100% sure that with the first novel I wrote, The Miniaturist, I wrote a cast of characters, all of whom I would have liked to have played. And so many actresses I knew wanted to play all those parts because these were women who were a little bit more flawed, a little bit more real. And then, of course, it did end up being made into a TV series. So I got there eventually, <laughs> except I wasn't playing the starring role, which is fine. But yeah, it, it just, I think I always did write. I wrote skits and plays and poems at school and you know, competitions and things like that. But I never thought about it as something separate to who I was or something I was aiming for. Yeah. Like with acting, there was a destination, there was a journey, there were going to be plays I was in and TV series and an Oscar at the end of it, you know. <laughs> Whereas with writing, I just, I never even thought about it. It was like, yeah, that's like same as breathing. Yeah. Not in a kind of grandiose way, but just I didn't view it as something apart from me that I was aiming for. And so when I did start writing with more focus and I got a lot more success, <laughs> a lot quicker, or a lot more positive response, I kind of knew, well, this is it, isn't it? This is what I'm really good at or really yeah. supposed to do. Mm. Did but you I, also, have, I was going to say with your first book, like when you finished your first manuscript, did you think then, wow, this is for me? Um, no, I don't think so. I think what I felt at that point was I have nothing to lose. Mm. You know, I was at the time working as a PA in the city of London. So I was a, a secretary mm. and the writing was more 
a bit of a two-fingered salute to the world like you know this is who I am more this is you know this is my expression of myself in a world that was quite gray and quite hard and when I finished the book I mean I really wrote that novel as a novel that I would quite like to read and I didn't I, I think I can categorically say I didn't write the book thinking I'm gonna I've written a bestseller or this book's going to change my life I wanted to have written a book and to know that I could do that and I suppose it was more of an expression of who I was to myself mm. I would have been happy honestly to know that 500 people had bought a hardback copy and that was the difference and so when what happened happened which was you know quite a rapid take-up of the book it was just totally disorienting and destabilizing because I just sort of written I'd done what I'd always done I'd written a story and handed it over and except this time was a bit different I don't know I'm much more open than some authors I see and know who you know they sort of say it's my reason for being or it's my happy place I'm like oh, yeah. mm. my happy place is like sitting in front of the telly yeah. <laughs> yeah. Popcorn. Yeah. writing is so much more of a struggle for me but it's it's a compulsion and my best friend always laughs because I've just finished my fourth novel and I've said to her well obviously I'm never writing again never ever doing that again that is hell mm. and she's like mm-hmm Two weeks time, you'll be telling me you've got the new one. Uh, this might make you feel a little bit better. I spoke to Lee Child a couple of um, oh, years ago. Oh, yeah, he's a nice him. guy. He's a really nice guy. And I asked him about writing because, you know, I don't know how many books he's written, but it's a lot. It's more than four. And I yeah. said to him, does it get easier? And he said, never. No. Each one no, is no. as hard as the last one. And each time you have the self-doubt. Each time you sit down, you think, I can't do this. Is oh, it God, too yeah. Hard? Yeah. Well, I think there's such a beauty to your first novel or your first ever outing because you have come, whether you are an innocent person or not, you do come from a place of innocence with that because you've never been published. You're just writing in the dark and there's no expectation. The journey from having a book as a story, as a manuscript, as a, a landscape in your mind, a place you go to, to a, a place that is then shared and commodified and marketed into a, a, an object, a product, is quite challenging. And you'll never get that innocence back. And once you've got something amazing, like, you know, Lee Child's career is extraordinary, I'm sure there's a certain fear of having to maintain it. Mm. And I think that's the same with any success. Mm. It's like, okay, this is success. How do I keep up that level? I always think of, you know, elite sports people, just yeah, how they yeah. do it. It's so hard. But then you always have to come back to the fundamentals, which is writing something that is true to you, that interests you first and foremost. And then if I, I do believe that if it's something that you really care about and mean truthfully about, that does eventually communicate itself outwards to your readership. It's just you have to nurture that privately for however long before it's ready to turn outwards for your audience. Lovely. We've run out of time. What a oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> what a wonderful conversation. Jesse. I really enjoyed our chat very much and I'm hoping maybe one day we can meet in real life. Oh, God, I want to come back to Australia so yeah. badly. Yeah. I love it there. I've, I've had, I think, my best literary festival experience was at Adelaide. Yeah, wonderful. Festival. The way they looked after us and it's, yeah. it's you have a beautiful country. All right, you take care. Thank you so much for speaking with yeah. us today.
My pleasure. Thank you. If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda Audiobooks are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere, or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBookstore. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, join your local public library, and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of e-books and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape, imagine, grow, and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere. Everywhere. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.